Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 29, The Phoenix Lament. Come here, Harry. No, you can't stay here, Harry. Come on now. No. He did not want to leave Dumbledore's side. He did not want to move anywhere. Hagrid's hand on his shoulder was trembling. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Caspar Terkyle. And this is a very sad episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Honestly, as I was reading it on a train, I just like was weeping silently. I've wept in so many public places reading these books. But nonetheless, the show must go on. So, Casper, you are telling a story this week on the theme of power. Yes. My first job was as an executive assistant. So straight out of college, I joined a very small company, which was doing great work around sustainability. And it was my job to support the CEO in everything she did. And some of that was very exciting. We went to meet in the prime minister's office in England and I joined her on some international travel. And it also meant picking up her laundry now and then and preparing little briefings about who she was meeting and why and doing all sorts of things that you do for someone who's very busy and just needs some extra help. And I loved it. I loved working for her. But the thing that I learned about working for her was that as someone who had a lot of power, both within the company and also more broadly, a lot of influence, people really looked up to her, was that it was also quite a lonely position. Because if you're always the one in charge, you never really get to share things in the same way with the people that you're with. Either you're with your employees, for whom I started to realize you feel enormous responsibility. 
It's your job to make sure that everyone gets paid at the end of the month. It's your job to make sure that people still have a job. So there's this incredible weight of a responsibility. And also it's often very rare that you have someone who you can just ask for help because everyone's kind of looking to you to have all the answers. And I had really glamorized power in lots of ways as a young person. You know, I loved watching The West Wing and I, I loved shows where people were running things. And I kind of always wanted that for myself. And seeing it up close made me realize like, yes, you get lots of excitement and fun, but it's also, it can be lonely at the top. And so as we read this chapter on power, we've just said goodbye, or we're about to say goodbye really, to a person who's had that role for six whole books of the story so far. And I want to see what we can realize about Dumbledore's experience of having power by seeing how it's now dispersed, right? McGonagall takes up his role, but I mean, Harry takes up his mission. There's different people who'd pick up different elements of the work that Dumbledore was doing. And I want to see if that loneliness and that those difficulties come with it. In grad school, I decided that the thing to find most annoying was when we were having a debate about something and there would always be one person who would bring up power. But it's true, right? It is something that we have to think about in almost every dynamic. Who has the power in this relationship? What power am I holding that I don't realize that I have? What power do I not have that maybe I should? It's such an important implicit thing to make explicit. Yeah. Once you start looking for power, it's everywhere and nowhere. It's kind of like air. It's always there, but you can't just like capture it. But before we analyze all of the different dynamics of power in this chapter, let me demonstrate my power over you with a 30 second recap. All right, Vanessa, here we go. 30 seconds on the clock. Three, two, one. Go. So Harry is really upset, obviously, that um, Dumbledore died. He goes to the hospital room. Um, Fleur is like, I'm good looking enough for the both of us. Molly hugs Fleur. Fleur is sort of part of the family now. Um, McGonagall calls Harry into like a meeting of all the heads of house. So like, should we keep Hogwarts open? What should we do? Hagrid is like invited in as one of the heads of house, which is really beautiful. And then Harry is like, can I please avoid Scrimjaw? And McGonagall's like, yeah, go quickly. And so he goes into the common room and talks to Ron and Hermione, who's our that was impressive. Thank you. It's because I wasn't afraid to use my hands. <laughs> also, I feel like I'm still nervous about saying scrimger, scrimjawa, scrimjaw. So I appreciated your just like scrimger. Will you count me in? On your mark. Get set. Go. So Fleur's like totally going to stick with Bill because even though Bill's been totally scarred and his face is unrecognizable and Pomfrey is like nursing him back to hell, Fleur's like, no, I love him. He's perfect. And and then um, uh, and then Tonks is like, see, um, and, and Lupin's like, no, it's different. And, and then Tonks is like, no. And then um, uh, they probably get it on. Um, and then also, um, oh, oh, God. Um, the other thing that happens is that um, um, I, Harry's basically telling like what's happened and uh, he has to tell that to everyone. And, and now and now Slughorn's head of Slytherin House. Wow, that was really bad. I mean, but luckily you did get the really important thing about Lupin and Tonks, which is all that really matters. Okay, Vanessa, we have to start with Ginny. <laughs> I like freaking love Ginny Weasley in this chapter. Out of nowhere, she comes just like back into this book. Like, here I am. 
And I couldn't help but think like way, way, way back, we had Stephanie Purcell on and she chose as her spark clip in that episode, just that one word, Ginny, which was a quote from book two. And I feel like that word is just like resounding through the pages of this chapter because her power is everywhere. And it starts at the very beginning. Harry is standing there in front of Dumbledore's body. He's kind of paralyzed. And Hagrid, who has always been this like caring, maternal, but also powerful, protective figure for Harry, comes to take him away and Harry refuses to move. And it's Ginny and her small, warm hand that takes Harry and pulls him up that Harry doesn't even like consciously know it's Ginny, right? He just trusts it implicitly. She just has this power with him, not even over him even in that first moment. But it keeps happening through the chapter. So I want to talk about Ginny is the first thing I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, and there's something just really beautiful, right, about we think of size as power. And so to see the, like, limits of that in this moment is really interesting, right? Hagrid with all of his size and all of his might and all of his love, we need different kinds of love in different moments. Yeah, she just keeps showing up in these powerful ways. And exactly like you were saying, it's not using her size or her physical prowess, but there was an echo for me in that wonderful scene between Mrs. Weasley and Fleur standing over Bill's horribly scarred face, where Mrs. Weasley has been nursing him and applying this kind of ointment to his face. And Fleur says, I will do that. That is my role. I am his fiance. And it was kind of a similar thing for me in how Ginny and Hagrid interact with Harry as he's standing over Dumbledore's body, which is that Hagrid has always played this maternal protective role. And now Ginny is kind of the one who says, no, I will lead Harry in this next phase of life. There was just something so striking to me about this young woman who has such power in regards to Harry and is so much his equal in a way that just is always surprising to me. Yeah. And I think she's somebody who's fully stepped into that power, which I think is something that women especially have a hard time with of like not wanting to step on toes and being like, oh, well, you've known him longer, Hagrid. I would trust you to handle this. And she's just like, no, I know that I can do this and that I'm the right person to do this. And so I will. And I'm not going to apologize. And she also realizes Not when she's lost, but there's this moment in the chapter where she says, I guess Fleur's really going to marry Bill. And that's a moment where she's like, I'm giving up this fight. Like, I'm not going to go around hating Fleur anymore. And so she's not admitting defeat, but releasing that power struggle. She is. And I think it's such a token to Mrs. Weasley. I mean, I think the line is literally something like, you know, if mom can do it, so can I. But there's also something about redrawing the boundaries of Fleur being an outsider and being like, no, well, if Bill and now mom are bringing her inside, like in this time, like we need everyone who will love us and protect each other. You know, I I think she sees that now in a different way. Yeah. And I also think that her making it explicit and saying specifically, like, I have changed my stance on this is again, her recognizing her own power. Yeah. The fact that she feels the need to say it aloud, I think, is again, just her owning that her voice matters. Guys, I think I'm moving on from Percy and Ginny is now my favorite Weasley. Congratulations, you're on the right Weasley now. (laughs) So Casper, can I tell you who I was really drawn to in this chapter? Yes, you mean it wasn't also Ginny? I mean, I'm always (laughs) drawn to Ginny. I love Ginny, she is perfect. But Hagrid is Mm. just 
gorgeous in this chapter to me. McGonagall obviously immediately steps into her power. The headmaster's office becomes her office. The office behind the gargoyle is now hers. And she takes charge in a beautiful and nuanced way. She asks for the heads of house to come and immediately decisively appoints Slughorn as the replacement head of house for Slytherin. And then she says, and Hagrid, which Mm. I just think is fascinating. And then at one point, Hagrid rejects that power. She's like, Hagrid, what do you think about keeping the school open? And he's like, oh, that's up to the heads of house. And she gives him authority twice. She says, nope, Dumbledore always valued your opinion. And so do I. It did. It seemed like a kind of ordination. Oh, I love that. I guess I've just been feeling so frustrated with Hagrid never being fully reinstated as a full wizard. And this to me felt like a moment in which he was invited into more power explicitly than we've ever seen him be invited into. Well, you just made me cry because I just love thinking about that moment as an ordination. There is in that process of ordaining someone, they're given responsibility for the community, right? Like it's your job to lead people, to be a shepherd, to be a teacher, to be a model, to be a a gatherer. And these are things, of course, that Hagrid in some ways has already been doing in so many ways. But it's always been with a covert blessing, right? Like, oh, you can live in the little shed. No one will notice you. And now it's like being invited into the very center of power to be given that blessing, as you say, in in public, in front of colleagues. It's such a valuable thing to do, I think, for someone like Hagrid, for whom Dumbledore represented not just boss or teacher, but parent. And so this grief that Hagrid is experiencing, I mean, he's the one who looks after the body. He's doing all sorts of tasks now, which are about caring for the whole in a way that I think is really in a priestly way. I I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful analogy. Well, the other thing that struck me in that scene in particular is that Hagrid says it's for the heads of house to decide. Then he says, and the headmistress. And he's the first one to directly acknowledge McGonagall's new power. And then she turns around to him and acknowledges his power. Mm. It was just interesting to me that Dumbledore never did that. And this is just occurring to me now. I know Dumbledore just died, so I don't mean to besmirch his name. (laughs) But Hagrid gets arrested Mm. in book two and Dumbledore lets it happen. And then there's an attempt in book five to arrest Hagrid and McGonagall fights. And then Dumbledore is Hagrid's headmaster for 30 years or whatever and never brings him into the inner circle. McGonagall is headmistress for 30 seconds Mm. and includes Hagrid. And I just think that this is a way that having a woman in charge can make such a big difference. Well, I mean, there's all sorts of studies looking at how women are more likely to be collaborative leaders. I want to be careful to say that that's not some sort of like necessarily an instinctual thing. Right. But it's certainly the way that women lead is often much more by consensus building and bringing in multiple parties, which often end up with much more sustainable structures and trustworthy collaboration. So I I think you're completely right in seeing that. And it's interesting to me that already, and this is clearly a magic situation, when they walk in to the office, you know, Harry is expecting it to be cloaked with black velvet. And and of course it's not, it's just the old office. And yet we do see Dumbledore asleep in a portrait in that room already. You know, he's been dead an hour or so. 
And it suddenly made me think differently about all of these portraits. Like, I guess I'm just realizing that each of them had a life that they lived and a death that they died, you know, and, and who knows in what difficult circumstances they had died. I'm suddenly appreciating that history and that legacy of people with the power of serving the school's mission and how it has survived all of these years. That moment just made me appreciate those portraits so much more. And what you just said reminds me of something, which is that, you know, Dumbledore is now this portrait on the wall. And it's amazing how quickly his name is evoked as a power move. And I think we see Arthur Weasley do it first. You know, he's trying to convince Lupin to date Tonks. And he's like, Dumbledore would have been happy to have more love in the world. And then in this conversation amongst the heads of house, it's like, well, Dumbledore never would have wanted to close the school. That's not true. Dumbledore was willing to close the school this once. It is. It's like this power move, right, to evoke the name of Dumbledore. Well, and also because it's about using it as precedent, right? Like using it to model something. And I mean, honestly, that's what I love about the Tonks-Lupin situation, right? We see this amazing kind of confrontation between Fleur and Molly that we'll have to talk about in a minute, but that essentially she's saying like, I don't care that he's part werewolf. Like, if you think that's what matters to me, are you insane? Like, I love him. And that that modeling, right, that example has this power to unlock this gridlock that my God, Tonks and Lupin have been for like a book or more at this point. But there's something so powerful in that someone showing you how, right? Or someone going first or someone how they did it is important for how I'm going to do it. And it's so easy to think that like, oh, we're all just looking to Dumbledore. But Dumbledore learned it somewhere too. That's what I mean with these portraits. It's like each one had someone else that they could look to and say, well, this is how they would have done it. I just love that power of nearly like an ancestry, right? Like a lineage that we're all drawing from. I completely agree. And I think we see how mixed and confusing Dumbledore's legacy is. Mm. And what it ends up being is individuals stepping up and saying, this is the way I'm going to do it. So I think that these legacies can not only be positive sometimes and negative sometimes, but I think that they can be confusing. No doubt. I mean, it struck me also how Slughorn is kind of reeling from this revelation about Snape. Because for him, it's yes, it's about Snape, but it's Riddle all over again. I mean, he literally says Snape was my student. Like, I knew him. So that lineage, again, like is showing up in a wholly different way for Slughorn. And so you see how each of these characters is reckoning with their own Dumbledore legacy. Right. And dealing with different things that trigger them in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you help me think through what the Phoenix song means? You know, we've we've seen Fawkes' tears heal injuries. We've heard Fawkes' cry in times of duress and stress and like folks sings, sings for a long time and it moves people kind of to stopping. Like it has the power to interrupt activity and that people just listen. And it it seems to in Harry kind of unlock this grief in him. It, it, it's when things really become real, when he hears folks lament, like what's happening there? I don't know how to separate it from anything religious. Growing up, going to temple a lot, to some extent, just reminds me of Kol Nidre, which is my favorite service of the year. And it it's really a service about regret and grief. I just want to think of Fox as like a Jewish cantor leading in song. 
I love the moments in religion in which we no longer think that words can convey certain feelings and we just need music in order to do it. Yeah, like sometimes words just are insufficient. I'm remembering a teacher once telling me, like a music teacher, playing a recording of Chopin's Prelude in E minor. And he said, listen to this and just think of someone you love who's passed. And I can't help but hear that whenever someone plays it and it just like, oh, it makes me cry. I feel like that's what's happening for Harry. Like something's just being unlocked in a way that he wouldn't have been able to do on, on his own even. And if we want to anthropomorphize Fox for a minute, I think one of the things that we admire or love about animals is that they can feel one thing at once, mm. right? Like we tend to feel grief and confusion and regret and guilt hmm. all at the same time. And at <laughs> least the way that we understand animals, you know, who knows what they're actually thinking and feeling is that like they are capable of just joy mm. Mm. and just sadness. And so I feel like Fox's lament, it's just lament. And I think that there is power in the purity of one feeling at once. Okay, but this is really interesting because I think actually the closest we come to that kind of pure emotion is when Fleur is kind of incensed by the implication that she would not want to be with Bill. And I love that she pretends to not get it at first. <laughs> oh, you think she's pretending? Oh, I do. I think she knows exactly what Molly's hinting <laughs> and is like, oh, so you think he's not going to love me? Obviously, that's not what you think. You think I'm shallow and vapid, and I'm not. <laughs> so she just wants Molly to make it so explicit that it's going to make Molly realize how like ridiculous how she's being. How ridiculous it was. <laughs> I love that. I think she's totally intentionally misunderstanding Molly <laughs> and is like, why? Why? <laughs> Say it. Why? I am beautiful enough for the both of us. It's not a problem. <laughs> Molly. And then what's beautiful about it is, again, like that moment of pure emotion leads to this breakthrough in their relationship, right? They look at each other. They have this intense moment of like, oh, we're in conflict. We're in conflict. And then they just fall onto one another, weeping. And in that moment is a realization of the depth of their own worry and sadness about what's happened to Bill and that they recognize that the other one feels that just as much as they do. And it's so beautiful. It is. And I just think it's so wise of Molly, right? Once your child has like found the person they want to partner with, it's like you either get on board or you fight. And I just think it's like the strategic thing to <laughs> get on board. Unless you're worried about abuse, be all in. Yeah, because the risk is that if you don't get on board, that your own kid is just going to resent it and you'd grow more and more distant and the thing has happened anyway. I mean, the other thing that I love is, I mean, talk about an ordination. There's like a crowning here where the way that Molly says to Fleur, you're part of our family, is like, we have a family heirloom and I want to literally crown you in it. And I think it'll look so beautiful on you, right? Like honoring the thing that she used to judge about Fleur. Oh, I hadn't seen that. Oh, that's lovely. That it's like you're beautiful and being in our family will make you more beautiful. <laughs> Molly. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. The other thing I really noticed in this chapter is a lot of it is talking about what happened, right? Harry is saying over and over again, well, I know what happened. Well, this, that, and the other. And so we're learning about how the power of the potion, right? The Felix Felicis. Ginny's like, you know, if we didn't have that, we'd probably all be dead. But we also learn about this barrier that's set up that Snape is able to cross through that no one else is. Right? We see Neville is kind of repelled by it. And if, for me, it was such an echo of Dumbledore's power of constructing this protection around Hogwarts, right? That kind of invisible barrier. So I was just seeing that power of barriers and power of like physical buildings, really, in some way. I mean, what they're all acknowledging in this moment is the power of coming up with a single story as to what happened. They want a narrative. And I think there's this beautiful thing of like, well, this is what I saw. This is what I saw. And so let's come to logical conclusions together, right? Mm. Oh, it must be the dark mark. Oh, that's interesting. And Lupin is like, this killing curse was sent. Oh, that's the one that hit this person. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's just something beautiful about saying we're going to come together and together we will come up with a cohesive narrative of what happened because stories have power and we need to go out and tell this story a hundred times of like, this is what we were doing when it happened. This is why there's evidence that it was Snape. This is how we can prove that Harry was innocent they know that this is going to have to go out and become propaganda. And so they have to get the story right. Which makes it all the more interesting that when McGonagall asks Harry, so what were you doing together? Harry straight up refuses to say. Now, 
doing that with Scrimgeour is one thing, but doing it with McGonagall. I know. Right? One of Dumbledore's closest allies, certainly within the school, perhaps in life, someone who who Harry has always been able to trust. It was so shocking again to read it, like that point blank refusal. I wonder if it's a missed opportunity or if it was wise. I, I don't know. Regardless of whether it's a missed opportunity or wise, and I'm tempted to believe missed opportunity, it again speaks to the power of wanting to please a dead man. It's like, I'm not going to look at any of the facts right in front of me. I'm just going to do <laughs> yeah. what this guy said I should. There's such confidence in the clarity of it. Well, and I think that's so common. If you think about families who are like, you know, we should never sell this thing or, or they wouldn't have wanted that when often doing that very thing could actually serve the living and yet we're sort of protecting the dead. And there's a beautiful side to that, right? Like honoring someone's memory. But it, I think we have to privilege the living. That's the first responsibility is to folks who might suffer now if we do or don't do it, even if it counteracts the wishes of the dead. I mean, that's the whole justification of maintaining a Confederate flag. Mm. That you're saying, I don't care about the context that it's now taken in or that it became the war flag of pro-slavery, what it used to mean is just that we were the South and I am proud of that. And it's like, well, it doesn't mean that anymore. And it's actually really hurtful to a lot of people. And there are really interesting conversations about wanting to reclaim certain images or words, but mm -hmm. I think that only doing something for the sake of honoring the dead, that doesn't seem to me like enough of a reason. Yeah. I think we're back into a divinity school conversation about power. I think Foucault has made his appearance. <laughs> oh, God. So one last place that I conversely saw, oh, we thought there was power here, but that power was actually fake, was in this moment where Harry goes to the Gryffindor common room to the portrait of the fat lady. Yes. And she says, is it true that Dumbledore died? And Harry's like, yeah. And she just opens the portrait. And I'm like, oh, she never needed a password. <laughs> like, I always thought that there was like a password enchantment upon mm. her. Like it was a key. And it was just a moment where you realize that like the power has completely been dissolved. And she's just a painting and a wall. And like it used to occur to me all the time when I was teaching high school. I was like, I have no real power in this room. Like there are 30 of them and all of them are bigger <laughs> than I am. And like, this is all fake that they think I'm in charge. And I think those moments can be so scary where you look at a doctor and you're like, oh, I know more than you about this. Or you look at your parent and you're like, oh, yeah. like your authority is gone. There are moments in our lives where power sort of evaporates before our very eyes. It's like finding out how a magic trick works. It is just like completely disturbing to be like, oh, it was that simple. It was never real. And when the portrait opened like that, I was just like, oh, these kids were never safe. Safety was a complete illusion. That's such a powerful reading. Power is fake. And also real. So Casper, we are going to do Florilegia in which we both have picked a sentence and we're going to put them in conversation with one another. What sentence did you pick? I chose 
His hand of glory, said Ron, gives light only to the holder, remember? How about you? I picked young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. Oh. Casper, remind me the context of your sentence and why you picked it. So Ron is reminding everyone how he was guarding the room of requirement and waiting for Draco and that Draco did emerge out and saw that Ron was there and that he used the Peruvian instant darkness powder and that Ron was completely bamboozled and didn't want to use too many jinxes because there were you know other friends around guarding with him. And so in explaining how Draco got out with all of the Death Eaters who've entered Hogwarts, he says his hand of glory, which is this dark object that he got from Borgen and Burks earlier on in the story and how it gives light only to the holder. So Draco was able to navigate and help all the Death Eaters out. I don't know, this hand of glory for me is so interesting. Honestly, the first meaning for me that it has is that in a very famous soccer match between England and Argentina, Diego Maradona scored a goal with his hand. And th there's photographs now where you can see, which is against the rules of soccer. And so it's, it's often referred to as the hand of glory. Did the goal count? Yes, it counted because the referee didn't see that he used his hand. That's the outrage. Exactly. My jaw is dropped for those of you who can't <laughs> see my face. How about you? I mean, you've picked such a beautiful sentence. Yeah, it's when Tonks has just confronted Lupin and is like, see, I love you, just like Fleur loves Bill. And everybody is sort of like, yeah, Lupin, let her love you. And Lupin says she deserves someone young and whole. And Mr. Weasley sort of gestures to Bill and says young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. And there's just like a lot that's really beautiful about that to me. That Mr. Weasley is already willing to sort of use Bill <laughs> and his injury to make someone else's life better and be like, look, like you never know what's going to happen. I don't know. I just think it's a really important thing to remember right as you're going into war. You know, having grown up going to Israel a lot, you just walk around with soldiers everywhere and it's all these like young, gorgeous people. So young. I'm only 37, but I just look at soldiers all over the world. I mean, they're half my age, like they are children. And so it's important to me that we remember that being young and whole does not mean that you will remain so, that these are fragile bodies, even in their youth and beauty. Gosh, it reminds me of the kind of first world war poets as well. Yeah. So yeah, it seems to me an acknowledgement of the like acute risks of war right as we're going to war which seems like the right place to remember. So now let's put these sentences in conversation with each other. Do you want to read the two together, Casper? Sure. His hand of glory, said Ron, gives light only to the holder, remember. Young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. Whoa. I mean, it could so perfectly be about Draco. In so many ways, Draco has not been whole for a long time. He's certainly not been young through the duration of this book. And I think as much as we've seen these books be Harry's story and, of course, Hermione's story and everyone else, I always think of Draco as a sort of inversion of Harry. His story arc, as it were, is one of descent. And he makes decisions to take him there. And he's also put in positions that pull him there. And so I think in some ways you could read these two sentences together as a description of you know, his hand of glory, right? Like that thing of power and of, of evil that he's been reaching after gives light only in this very limited way. It, it does not 
make him whole. It does not make him happy. It does not serve him. And he is not young and whole anymore. He's he's very broken. I mean, his literal skin has been marked on with this Death Eater mark. What else do you read in it? My reading is fairly similar to yours. It's that, like, if somebody has something, a very specific gift, like his hand of glory, it doesn't necessarily remain so. That's always the tragic thing to me about, like, Olympians or anyone who works really hard on one thing. I'm like, that's so beautiful. Be virtuosic and incredible. And also, what if you break your thumb and you're a pianist? Like, it's just so important that we work on being happy in the world and not tying ourselves to to being young and whole. Mm. If your happiness is about your weight or about your skin looking a certain way or about a certain skill that you have, that is a fool's errand. Yeah, cannot last forever. Should we flip these sentences? Yeah, will you read it for us? Sure. So, young and whole men do not necessarily remain so. His hand of glory, said Ron, gives light only to the holder. Remember? It just makes me think of privilege, that not all young and whole men will remain so, but if you have a hand of glory, the holder will have more light. And light makes the world safer. Sure, the world is dangerous, but it's safer for some people. I mean, what all of this is leaving me thinking about, because the only character that's named in this actual quote is Ron. I'm just seeing that image of Ron clutching at the locket that's around him and how the things that we touch and what they represent shape us too, right? Like these are not neutral things in the world. They indelibly influence what our characters end up doing, right? His wholeness, his wholesomeness is robbed by wearing this Horcrux. He's a young and whole man and does not remain necessarily so. So I just see, I see Ron behind both of these quotes as we've read them like this. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... You can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Vanessa, it's time for our voicemail. And this episode, we're going to be hearing from Hannah. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Hannah, and I love your podcast so, so much. I wanted to respond to your thoughts about um, book five, chapter Luna Lovegood. Um, The theme was humility, and you guys talked about Thestrals and how Harry is only now seeing them because even though death has already been a part of his life, he is now humbled by it. And that really resonated with me. Like Harry, death came into my life fairly early. When I was eight, my youngest brother, who was two, passed away. And I grew up in a Christian community. So after my brother passed away, everyone around me reinforced the ideas of heaven and an afterlife that I already had. So rather than letting death make me humble, I stood very firm and believed very strongly in heaven and an afterlife where I would see my brother again because I had to. But a few years after college, one of my friends passed away from cancer. And this time, the grief that I experienced shattered my confidence in what I formerly believed. It caused me to question everything. And I still hope that heaven is real, but I would never say that I'm certain of it. And I'm pretty sure I have no concrete answers anymore. Having doubt is hard, but I am thankful for one thing that it's made me more humble. So I want to say a blessing for Harry. Seeing Thestrals means that he's experienced death that has caused a total paradigm shift in his life. And the way we think about death shapes the way that we think about life and what everything means. So even after this book ends, Harry has a lot of meaning making to do from all of his experiences of death and this first one especially. So a blessing for Harry and everyone who is working through a heavy topic that feels like it changes everything. And for all the doubters out there, you're just as sane as I am. Thanks. Hannah, thank you so much for that voicemail. I think every death is really different and hits us in different ways. I think what I'm grateful for in your voicemail is that you're not judging the way that you dealt with the death of your brother when you were younger. I think that whatever response we have in grief is the right response at the time. And of course, our beliefs evolve over time. And just because one set of beliefs worked for you at one point doesn't mean that it's wrong now that it no longer works for you. Thank you so much for being that example for us. And I'm really sorry for, you know, not just your losses, but the losses that we all have to go through in our lives. So Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from the pages of this chapter. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Fleur for just like the greatest line ever. And I know we've already talked about it, but I think it deserves a blessing. And it is, I am pretty enough for the both of us. Yes. Talk about stepping into your power. It's like, I am fiance. I am beauty. I am nurse. I just love it. She is asserting herself. And she's so confident. 
And so, yeah, it's just like rare that anyone says something that's just perfect. And Fleur does in this moment. So I want to offer her a blessing for being perfect. So good. Who would you like to bless, Casper? I want to bless Lupin. He's super frustrating in rejecting Tonks' love for so long. But he's, he's not doing that because he's stupid or he's selfish. Like, he desperately believes that allowing Tonks to be with him would make her life worse. And he loves her so much that he wants to protect her from that. Now, he's wrong, right? But that comes from a place of protection and goodness. And so I guess I just want to bless anyone who thinks that that they're bad news somehow or that the people they love are better off without them. Like, you're wrong, okay? Like, let Arthur Weasley tell you, right? Dumbledore would be glad for any more love in the world. So I'm so, so glad that Lupin knows that. I love that you just yelled at all of our (laughs) listeners and were like, you're wrong. But it was like the most loving yelling at thousands of people, you're wrong thing I've ever heard. Well, tune in next week for more shouting (laughs) about love when we read our final chapter of book six, The White Tomb, through the theme of love. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you don't have a local group near you, join our Facebook common room to chat with other listeners about this episode. Or come and join the amazing community of people supporting us on Patreon, which makes all of this possible. You can leave us a review on iTunes or send us a voicemail. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, and our associate producer is Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We want to thank Hannah for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Maggie Needham, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks so much, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. It's just like now we're getting to the business end. It's just like, I'm like, no. I just don't want to. Like, honestly, I've reread the early books so many times. And it's these later books I've only read twice because it's just it's just sad. Yeah. It's not cute anymore. No. I just want grand great holes with floating candles. I don't want dead Dumbledore. <laughs>